This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2022, live in a classroom at Yale University. Ukrainian Ideas in the 21st Century. So this lecture is about culture. I'm not going to try to define what a culture is. We've got the whole anthropology department for that. But what I have in mind here is a very broad notion of, let's say, um, a set of self, a set of mutually reinforcing notions of what a people might be. So by Ukrainian culture here, I'm not going to have time to get into, with some exceptions, you know, the details of Ukrainian literature and Ukrainian poetry. What I'm mainly concerned with is the notion of a people. So I'm, I'm going all the way back, if you remember, all the way back to September in the first couple of lectures when I tried to specify that the modern legal notion of genocide rests on the equally modern notion of a people or a nation. And that these two things are in a kind of uncomfortable relationship, one with, with the other. And as we, as we complete this course during, during a war, which certainly has genocidal aspects to it, it's worth thinking about that relationship. So the Genocide Convention of 1948 assumes that there is such a thing as a people. Right. It assumes that there is a society which has a top and a bottom, um, which has some way, some, which has some kind of a border where people are in or people are people are out. So, gen- so the convention acknowledges a people in law by presuming that they exist. You can think of the act of genocide as a different kind of acknowledgement. Right. You don't you don't destroy something if it doesn't exist. You don't seek to destroy something if it doesn't exist. But the slightly tricky part about this is that very often the act of destroying a people begins with the explicit verbal negation of its existence. Right? And so one of the larger points I want to try to make in this lecture, maybe the large point, is that Ukrainian culture, the notion of what Ukraine is, where it begins and where it stops, can't really be done outside of this larger notion of an encounter. It can't really be done outside of the notion of an encounter with the Russian Empire, with the Soviet Union, and contemporary Russia. Um, Now, as I try to make this argument, I want to be clear about something very specific about this encounter, something which makes it a little bit different from the other encounters we've, we've talked about in this class, which is that this is an encounter which denies that it is taking place, Okay. Um, this is like, I'm sure you've all had moments like that in your lives, right? Like perhaps on a Saturday night, like encounters where, okay, that was like a really like low, like going really low, really fast, <laughs> really early on a really important point. <laughs> all right. Um, but, but there's a, there's a certain strangeness to an encounter or there's this, let me put this way, there's a specific character to an encounter where one side denies that the encounter is actually taking place. A third party looking in will say, well, yes, the encounter is happening. But there's nevertheless something specific about this. So, so as a way to start, I want you to just remember that moment in the third quarter of the, of the 19th century in the Russian Empire where the existence of U- the Ukrainian language is being denied. It's a very specific thing to do, right? Like to go out of your way to deny something exists is a very specific form of action. The, the, the value of decree of 1863 includes the famous passage that I'm quoting now, the Ukrainian language never existed, does not exist, and shall never exist, right? So, um, or as we say in Ukrainian, um, right? Uh, so, I don't know. That was kind of a joke. Um, so the um, so so, but there's a very specific there's a very specific thing going on here when an encounter is being denied, right? So if it never existed, why would you refer to it, right? If 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 it doesn't exist now, why are you banning it? But maybe the most interesting thing is the claim that it never will exist. It never will exist. There's this very specific kind of omniscience going on when I make the claim that something will not happen, 
right? I'm denying, I'm denying the basic unpredictability or at least the contingency of, of, of everything which is going to happen after I, after I issue this decree. In other words, this, this decree um, is, is, um, is, is, is doing a very specific kind of work. The relationship between the emerging Russian imperial culture and, and, and the Ukrainian culture which exists at the time is taking on a very specific form. Because of course, it's not as like, it's not as logically contradictory or silly as maybe I'm suggesting. The idea that the Ukrainian culture or language doesn't exist means that its existence, its existence can only be described as part of Russian culture, right? So it's not that there are no, you know, it's not that there's nothing there. It's rather that it can only be described as existing as part of something else, right? And so when I say that you don't exist, what I'm really doing is that I'm saying that I do exist, right? So there's a, there's a fancy term for this, which is like constitutive other, um, you know, which you're welcome to note down and use to impress your friends. But the idea, that, the idea that you don't exist is how I show that I do exist. What you are doing has no character of its own. It is a version of what I am, am doing, right? Um, and so there's a very specific thing which is going on here, whereby Russian culture as it emerges is being defined not exactly against Ukrainian culture, but somehow riding along on top of Ukrainian culture. Anything that seems to be Ukrainian is actually Russian, and anyone who denies this um, is moved out of history. So this is where the categorical part of never will exists comes in. So this class, you know, this class has been all about encounters. A basic argument about the nation in this class has been that no nation comes from, from nowhere, right? That's why like all the founding stories are so implausible, like, you know, the one with the lady and the snake and like the one with the guy. The founding stories are all really implausible, right? They're fun, they're silly, they don't make any sense. All the stories of ethnogenesis, you know, including the ones involving the aliens, they're, they're all implausible, right? But there's always some encounter. And the whole argument of this class about how something specific emerged on the terrain that's now Ukraine involves, right, it involves um, the, the Khazars and the Vikings and the Byzantines, you know, and, and the Slavs and the Lithuanians and the Poles. And of course, it also very much involves the Russians and, and the Soviet Union. But there's something very specific going on from the 19th to 21st centuries where this encounter has, a, has, has an ideological quality to it that the others don't. Or in the case of the Polish one, I would say no longer have, right? No longer has, but in Russia, it clearly does. So in order to get, so in order to get ourselves to get ourselves to see this and maybe get ourselves out of it, we have to, we have to kind of look at um, some trajectories in the Russian encounter with Ukraine not from the point of view of how like a Russian national ideology would see them, but just to note what this encounter looks like, right? So this very special thing, this is the overall special thing. There have been lots of, you know, lots of European empires, right? But they all have the feature, and write this down because it's important, of starting in Europe, except for one, you see? What's very different about the Russian Empire is that it becomes an empire by going into Europe, right? By going into Europe. The, the Russian Empire becomes the Russian Empire in 1721, having moved from Asia into Europe as a result of the cataclysm of 1648 onwards. Remember that, and then there was that whole lecture about the 18th century and the collapse of Poland, Lithuania, the collapse of the Cossack states, the collapse of the Crimean Tatar state, all those things happening in the 18th century, leaving Russia in Europe. But it's not a European empire that went outwards, right? It is a state which was centered at the edge of Europe in this relatively new city called Moscow, which first went south and east, and then in its final stage of development went into Europe. And the ambivalence of the relationship with Kiev is built into that. Because on the one hand, on the one hand, you become European by claiming Kiev, 
right? Because Kiev has all those European things that you might want. It has the old baptism. It has, it has, the, it has North European history. It has the Renaissance. It has the Baroque. Um, it has all the European references. It's just older than you are, and by a lot. I mean, by five centuries, right? Kiev is four or five centuries old in Moscow. It is a millennium older than St. Petersburg, right? That's a lot. So, so you, you, the ambiguity is you become European by going to Kiev, but since you're the empire, you can't acknowledge that the periphery is better than you. So this tension is built in from the very, very beginning. On the one hand, we are European because Kiev, but on the other hand, the people who are around Kiev have to be the periphery and are therefore inferior. That tension is built in from from the moment that Kiev, Chernihiv, these places come into the Russian Empire, and it's it's still very much present today, right? Um, so, 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 you're, so the, the Russian Empire vis-a-vis Ukraine is simultaneously inferior and superior at the same time, right? It's superior because it's big and powerful and it's the empire, but there's also, it's also inferior because this is the place that actually allows us to become, to become the Europeans, right? This is the place that allows us to become the Europeans, but we can never say that. That can never be said out loud, right? So there's this deep tension which is, which is, which is, which is built into all of this. Okay, so, um, so, so, the, so one part of this is the, is the timing, right? Another part of this has to do with an encounter in religion. There probably hasn't been enough religious history in this class. And it's, it's an important element of, of the history of Ukraine, in particular the distinctiveness of, uh, between Ukraine and Russia not just because there are the, the church, there's a Greek Catholic church in Ukraine and not in Russia, not just because church participation is much higher in Ukraine than it is in Russia, but maybe mainly because in Ukraine, there is not a clear relationship between church and state the way that there is in Moscow, both at present and historically. Um, for, for many centuries, the relationship between the church and the state, and including the last 30 years, in, in, in the lands of Ukraine has been rocky and uneven. The church has not has been repressed by the state. Um, it's been apart from the state, but it has not. It's never been seamlessly woven together with the state, and that's an important difference. But from the point of view of Moscow, this curious things happens, which I mentioned in the 17th century. But it's very. It's, a, it's not an important example of this dialectic. The the Russian Orthodox Church, such as it is, and now I'm leaning very heavily on a dissertation by the wonderful um, Yale PhD graduate Zhenya Sakal. The, the Russian Orthodox Church, such as it is, takes on its form and its own narration of what it is in an encounter with Ukraine. So if you, if you remember back to the 18th century, um, when the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth collapses, there are all of these educated churchmen in places like Kiev and Chernihiv, and they've been having these debates with each other, and they've been having debates with the Catholics and the Protestants. They've been besieged by the Counter-Reformation. They've been dealing with the Jesuits for decades. You know, they're, they are, they, these are very erudite men, and suddenly they're confronted with this new situation in which there's no longer the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth to deal with, no, that ref, no longer the Reformation, Counter-Reformation, all that's gone, but there are these fellows in Moscow. <laughs> Um, and they're suddenly subordinate to them. So what is the story that you tell? Um, there's a political story, I'll return to that, but there's also a religious dispute which takes place. And in this religious dispute, um, authorities in Moscow and authorities in Ukraine have different ideas, and the authorities in Moscow have the power, the authorities in Ukraine have the arguments, but what happens over time, and this is all, verges on being a general truth, the people with the power will eventually figure out the arguments, <laughs> and they will eventually use them. So within the space of a generation, the, 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 the church authorities in Moscow are also using the same sources and the same kinds of arguments that the, the church authorities in Ukraine are using. In other words, the church authorities in Moscow, by way of Ukraine, start reading the French and the Latin, and they start borrowing the arguments from the Western theologians, and they start disputing and doing all the things that the Ukrainians are doing. And, and what they come up with is this interesting claim. They claim, well, the reason that we are different and we are right about theological matters is that we, the Russian Orthodox Church, are basically the unbroken cont continuation of the Byzantine Church. Um, that nothing has really happened, it's just all like a placid pool of non-events. We are pure, right? And this is, if you know anything about Russian Orthodoxy, this is the account to this day, 
right? That it's a non, basically a non-historical institution. But this argument that they're a non-historical institution emerges as a result of historical encounter with Ukraine. Very much like the political point which I made in the lectures a couple of weeks ago. The idea that Kiev and, and Moscow are somehow connected, organically connected, that Moscow fulfills itself in Kiev and vice versa and all of this, that is also an argument which was made by Ukrainian churchmen in the late 17th century facing a new position of power. Right, and it's a, as, and you'll remember, like it's a pretty it's a pretty clever argument, at least in the short term. If you're in Kiev and suddenly you're being ruled by Moscow, you make the argument, "Hey, you in Moscow, everything actually came from us in Kiev, right? Therefore, we're very important." But given a generation or two, that argument will be turned around against you, um, and it will become something much more like Kiev. Kiev fulfills itself in Moscow. It all began in Kiev, but everything fulfills itself in Moscow, and so now the role of Kiev is to be subordinate to Moscow. But the point is that that whole argument never emerges without Ukraine, right? So all of these important steps in the history of what's going to become Russian culture are deeply organically connected with Ukraine. Take, take literature, right? Take literature. Who's the, okay, I'm, I'm, who's the first important Russian writer? Besides Pushkin, Gogol. Yes, Gogol, who who is like who is from Ukraine, as everyone knows, from Ukraine, right? And his first stories are about Ukraine, and you know his his family his family is Ukrainian. Um, it, it, Gogol is the is like is the turning point where the bilinguality stops being Ukrainian Polish and moves towards being Ukrainian Russian. Right? From the point of view of the 20th or the 21st century, you might think, well, the Ukrainians and the Russians, they've always been together. Blah. No, it was the Ukrainian-Polish was the normal bilingual character situation for a long time. In the 19th century, Ukrainian-Russian starts to become the normal one, and you have these Ukrainians who, begin, who, who, write, who write in Russian. If you don't know Gogol, by the way, um, after exams, I know, but you might want to start reading some of his short stories. He's, if you like the grotesque, like if you have a taste for things like Edgar Allan Poe or Kafka, it's truly extraordinary, wonder, wonderful stuff. Um, but but the, you know, the, 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 the cliche is that we all come out from under Gogol's overcoat, which is a play on words because like an overcoat, but also the overcoat is one of Gogol's most important, one of his funniest and most important stories. But Russian literature comes from this Ukrainian, Ukrainian story, right? So in all of these levels, we, at all these levels, we have, we, have the same, we have the same problem. Another is with educated elites. So again, by the 20th century, um, there are very impressive Soviet educational institutions. And by the 19th century, early 20th century, Russian imperial ones as well. But when these two societies merge, the Kiev Mohila Academy in Kiev is far more important than any educational institution in the Russian Empire. And so during the 18th century, graduates of the Kiev Mohila Academy are flooding Petersburg, which is the capital after 1721, with the educated elites who help govern the empire, right? So in all, in all of these ways, in all of these ways, um, the, the Ukraine is what's needed to make a Russian self-assertion, but that Russian self-assertion has to negate its own sources, right? It has to negate its own sources or else it will seem incomplete. Something, something related happens at the level of, of, of history um, where uh, the, but the, the, the Russian story, as I've just described it, it has to be a story about political legitimacy. Right? And again, if you, you can see an extreme version of this in Putin today, where Russia exists and has the right to rule because of baptism in Kiev in 988. Nothing that's happened between then and now really matters. What you have is an unbroken right to rule as a result of a kind of metaphysical event a long, a long time ago. It's a version of, I mean, it is actually very much like and is a version of these medieval or early modern stories where a family says, by the way, we're descended from wolves, and not just any wolves, but the ones who founded Rome, you know, or whatever, right? When, like, I'm sort of, that's kind of a Habsburg joke. Um, but when families, you know, families, you have families, you may know this, like families have these kind of, you probably have, you know, probably some of your family tells you the story, like you had this great uncle, he actually invented the airplane. You know, if you let families go on like that, they eventually just, you know, everybody kind of is descended from some king or whatever. 
I'm making a serious point, or trying to, which is that history begins with, a, with the genealogy that legitimizes eternal power, right? So if you're a family, you have trouble getting, you have trouble at keeping power. Getting power, not so hard, blood and treasure. It's keeping power which is hard, and that requires some kind of legitimating ideology. And the idea that you're gonna keep power forever into the future makes more sense if you can explain why you've had power or should have had power forever into the past. And so there's some kind of story about how, what, where you came from, right? So a lineage of power, and that's where political history comes from, okay? The ch so, if you're, so now if you're in the 19th century and it's Ukraine, the move that you make is you counter political history with social history. And that's Hrushevsky, right? That's Mihailo Hrushevsky. You then say, no, history isn't just about um, some kind of legitimating story that makes sense to the people who are in power. It's about actual continuities in culture, right? That history is about the people, okay? Then you get into, you get into this, this conversation which continues to this day where, if I say history is not about the power, it's about the people, okay, at first glance that might seem very, you know, very, very much a matter of justice, but the obvious question is, okay, who's the people then? Like, are the Jews the people? Are the Poles the people? Is everybody who's on the terrain the people? Or is it just the people who know, if, the, if history is about the songs and the stories and the language, what about the people who don't know the songs and the stories and the language but live on the same territory, right? So. This is where there begins in Ukraine, but not just in Ukraine, it's just Ukraine's a very interesting and clear case of this. In Ukraine begins this, this forgive me, like this dialectic where neither of these positions is, it can be exactly right, right? The idea that history is about the people is attractive, right? But if you push it to an extreme, that makes history just about the ethnicity and it becomes ethnic nationalism. Then there's the counter argument which says, no, the people are, the people are defined by action. The, the nation is a daily plebiscite. And so it doesn't matter whether they're Jews or Germans or Poles or whatever. It's about participation and cooperation and things like this. That's the political nation. But if you push that all the way to this extreme, then everything is politics. I could, why, don't, why can't I make compromises with some other nation? Maybe I can just take money from this guy over here. What's wrong with that? It's all part of me being political, and this is the political nation, right? And so neither of these positions can quite be correct. Um, at least taken to an extreme, they're in some kind of they're in some kind of communication with one another the the entire time, and that and that discussion is going on today. It has to do partly with the Jews, um, the Jews in Ukrainian history, which um, which is an example of culture which we which we have to spend at least a moment on. Um, the, the the Jews of Ukraine are there because of currents in Polish history. The, the, Jews, the, the Jews of Ukraine um, become Russian imperial subjects after Ukraine ceases to become part of Poland. Um, the Jews of Ukraine um, see over the course of the 19th century their traditional way of life essentially broken down as a result of the military draft and other things. And um, the Jews of Ukraine, or some of them in the late 19th century, build up um, a kind of a, a modern Yiddish literature. The most important example of this, which you will have heard of if you come from these traditions at all, is Sholem Aleichem. Um, Sholem Aleichem is basically, and now I'm stealing an idea from my colleague Amelia Glazer, but what Sholem Aleichem is basically doing is he's taking Gogol and, and uh, Gogol and his portraits of the Ukrainian countryside and making them gentler, you know, and bringing the Jews into the center of the conversation. Um, but whereas, whereas, uh, whereas Gogol at the beginning of the 19th century was very much about, them, was very much about taking mystical uh, pre-enlightenment beliefs and working them into modern literature, what Sholem Aleichem was doing was taking Yiddish, Yiddish language, that's important, he's writing in Yiddish, Yiddish language literature and using it, Yiddish, which is an old language and only newly a literary language, taking Yiddish and using it to write about the problems of modernity. And what are the problems of modernity? The problems of modernity are socialism, romantic love, right? So the position in Tevye the Dairyman is that he has, he has these daughters and if you, you guys know this, Fiddler on the Roof, right? Fiddler on the Roof, right? So it's the problems of modernity from the point of view of a Jewish dad, basically, right? And, but in the girls, all the daughters all have some, you know, they all do some unexpected thing, but each the, one of the things they do represents modernity, like the socialist, the one, you know, the rejecting the church, but even romantic love itself. Is, 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 a modern, is a modern idea here. Okay, so um, this is, so, so the Jews are, if there's going to be a talk of cu culture in Ukraine, 
the Jews in Jewish history have to be part of it. Um, and that includes the broad destruction of Jewish culture at the beginning, not of the second, but the first world war when the Jews of, of Western Russia were, were deported, um, which was one of the causes of, of the pogroms, which happened uh, most intensively in Ukraine during the war. Um, we, we have to also talk about the assimilation of Jews in Ukraine to the Russian language before, but especially after the Bolshevik, the Bolshevik Revolution. And then in Ukraine in particular, and I'm just, I'm just very briefly referring to material that we've read and we've talked about, but the mass murder of most Jews in Ukraine during the Holocaust. And then after that, the return of Jews, not return is the wrong word, but the, the immigration or the movement of Jews from elsewhere in the Soviet Union to what is now Ukraine. So Ukraine is now one of the most important Jewish countries in the world, numerically speaking. Um, it's one of the few, you can count them on one hand, countries that have a Jewish president. It is the only country in the world that will ever, now I'm gonna make a prediction, that will ever have a Jewish president elected by 70% or more of the vote. I don't think that's ever gonna happen because it won't happen in Israel because there are always two candidates, right? So it's hard to, you know, see, I'm cheating, I'm using math. Um, but uh, so, but, but this, this Jewish Ukrainian culture, right, is a, is a post-war um, second, third, fourth generation Ukrainian culture. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's clearly part of what one could think of as a, as, a political, as a political nation, right? So the greatest, again, like, so now we're in a situation where the greatest Ukrainian warlord in history is a Jew, which proves that God is Jewish and has a sense of humor. Um, <laughs> in, in the Soviet Union, there's a version, and we've talked about this, of how Ukraine becomes the constitutive other. Um, it, the, the, the Soviet Union needs things from Ukraine. The Soviet un Union needs for Ukraine to be a, a nation, but then not to be a nation, right? So it, it, it needs for Ukraine. So Ukraine, Stalin, Lenin, they know that Ukraine is a nation. Um, they need Ukraine. They need they want as much of Europe as they can, but they have to settle. You know, they have to settle for Ukraine. They need Ukraine to be a nation, but they also need it not to be a threat. And so that's the dialectic of the 1920s and 1930s, where the Ukrainian nation, Ukrainian literature, um, Ukraine, the Ukrainian people are educated. Literature is supported for a while, and then it it breaks in in the early in the early 1930s. In a similar way, the Ukrainian economy has to exist and not exist. The Soviet Union needs the Ukrainian economy because of, and this is a theme which literally goes back, I mean, a lot of things people say go back to the ancient Greeks, but mostly we're just having fun. In this case, it really goes back to the ancient Greeks. Um, Ukraine is a breadbasket, right? Athens depends on grain from what is now Ukraine, just as the Soviet Union depended upon grain from what is now Ukraine. It's a breadbasket. So they need, they need the economy, but they, also, but they don't want it to be the Ukrainian economy. It has to be part of a larger, a larger project, right? Um, it's not, if, they had, if they had let the Ukrainian peasants just grow the grain, they would have had bigger yields than they did under collectivized agriculture. But collectivized agriculture meant that it was all under control. And it would be the Soviet Union, which would be in charge of the distribution and the exports, right? So the Ukrainian, Ukrainian economy has to exist and has to not exist, which is a very brief way of referring to something that we have talked about before, which is the death of about 4 million inhabitants of Soviet Ukraine during, um, during the 1930s. Something similar can be said about Ukrainian culture after the Second World War. And again, now I'm reviewing a theme. So we, we, we need it, but, but we don't need it. And, and this is, you know, in this, during the Second World War, we need, we is now the Politburo, right? We is Stalin. We need Ukraine because the war is being fought in Ukraine. And so we'll, we'll talk up the Ukrainian nation. We'll even talk about Bogdan Khmelnytsky as being a hero um, while the war is going on. When the war is over, this is all gonna change. Under Zhdanov, this is all going to change. Ukraine is gonna be suspicious. The Western Soviet Union is going to be suspicious. And then Khrushchev is going to find this brilliant solution. And I mean, I, I don't mean that ironically. It, as politically, it has been very powerful. You, if, you need Ukra if you need the Ukrainian nation, you need Ukrainian culture, but you also don't need it, what do you do? You, you say it's real, but its reality is expressed in its merging 
with Russia into something bigger, right? And so the brilliance of, of this move in 1954, um, you remember 1954, it's when they gave out the cigarette, like millions of cigarette packs with the words 300 years on them, um, also nightgowns, socks too, I think. Um, the, 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 the brilliance of that is that you're acknowledging that Ukraine is real, but you're just saying Ukraine's history went in a certain direction. It, in 1654, Ukrainians made this choice and it binds on them forever. It's been done, right? So let's just remember that. And the Soviet Union is a version of this choice which was made 300 years ago. So Ukraine is real, it's just that Ukraine's existence is now meaningful as part of a larger unit with Russia. And that is the version of how to think about Ukraine which works extremely well. Right in Soviet Russia um, and in Soviet Ukraine for, for a lot of for a lot of Soviet Ukrainians, for a very long time, something like that, some some version of that, from from 1954, um, and this uh, and this is expressed. You know, this is an expression. Again, these things aren't just made up. Um, these things are expressions of the actual politics of the actual Soviet Union. So. You know, this, this might come as a surprise, but there haven't actually been that many Russian leaders of Russia, like in the, in the narrow sense of Russian, right? So, you know, if, if, if Russia claims the ancient dynasty from Kiev, I mean, those guys, those, they were Scandinavians. Um, and then, you know, the Romanovs, at least after Catherine, I mean, the only Romanov we can be sure of after Catherine was Catherine, because you always know who the mother is, right? Um, I really have to stop because I don't have enough time to talk about Catherine the way that I'd like to talk about Catherine. Um, but in the case of the Romanovs, the only Romanov, I mean, this is, all, this is dead serious now about the succession. The only Romanov you can be sure of after Catherine is Catherine herself, and Catherine was a German. Um, so there aren't, that's, not a, that's not a Russian origin story, right? Um, and then, you know, the Bolsheviks, okay, Lenin is like maybe the most famous Russian of the 20th century, but how many Russian grandparents did he have? That was like a high-level question. I'm looking at the TAs. One, one. Um, Stalin's a Georgian. Khrushchev is from Russia just barely, but he grew up in Ukraine. And Brezhnev, um, as, as uh, Zhenya has taught me, changed his, cha was, born in, was born in Ukraine and had Ukrainian nationality as his passport nationality and changed it to Russian. Right? Changed it to Russian. So you have to get, oh, in, in Gorbachev, half Ukrainian family from Southern Russia. And I, and I am old enough to remember people in Moscow making fun of his accent and saying that, you know, he's actually from Ukraine, right, this guy. So, and so, so you, you have to get, you have to basically get to Yeltsin or Putin before you're talking about Russians in an unambiguous sense running Russia, right? And so the story of how we need them Right, we need them, but we can't say we need them, actually reflects the history of the Soviet Union in all of these ways. It also reflects the, the history of Soviet industrialization, where, um, where a, much of what is important is in Ukraine. The, the coal and the steel, and then later the rockets. A lot of what is important is in Ukraine. And so we need Ukraine. We need Ukraine. We, we need it more than we say we can need it. And so that's why what we need has to be incorporated into this story about how what we need doesn't really exist on its own, it exists with us. And you know, in case I forget to say this, the point of all of this is, the point of all of this is that one can't talk about Ukrainian culture without all the encounters, but this is a specific kind of encounter, right? This is a specific kind of encounter. It's a little tiny bit like US history, where like with the attitude of whites towards blacks, where we are us because of you, right? You're what makes us different, but we can't acknowledge you for that reason, you see? Like the difference, that's like, it's that same kind of pattern. The difference is the Europe part, right? That the Europe part plays out differently, but it's that, it's that kind of move, right? It's that kind of move. So just in case I forget to say that, that's the argument, that it's an encounter, but it's not like other encounters. It's not like other encounters. But, you know, the point, the point of culture, like the point of culture, is also, and now we're, going to get, now we're going to talk a little bit more in depth for the next 15 minutes about the, the late Soviet period and the contemporary period. The, po the point of culture, though, would be that e even though all these things, I'm, all these contingencies I'm insisting on are true, that if you're creating culture, you're trying just to create, like you're trying to create, right? You're trying to create. And 
the much of the protests that happen from the 60s onward are kind of in that spirit, where the notion of Ukrainian culture is not that we're trying to defend Ukrainian national culture. We're just trying to defend culture. Like we're just trying to be ourselves. The, and the move that the Ukrainian dissidents make, especially in the 70s, is they say, look, it's not about Ukrainian culture and Russian culture writ large. It's not even really primarily about Russian culture and its hegemony, although that's a problem. What it's really about is the individual. This is the move they make in the 70s, right? They, they, they say human rights includes the right to be from the culture that you're from. And that's something inside you as a person, right? And so that, that has to do, so that's like, that's your, that is your, that is your normality. Um, I, I, so I'm gonna mention a couple of crucial examples of this, and there's only really time for, for a couple. But one is 1965, uh, when this is um, early, early Brezhnev, um, Ukrainians are being, are being persecuted. And at the same time, a film comes out, which I urge you to see, called uh, Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, um, which is by a Georgian-Armenian, um, Sergei Parianov, but it's based, on, um, it's based on a story by a Ukrainian writer called Kobylansky. And it's set in the extreme, extreme west, the Carpathians, extreme west of Ukraine. It's not only in Ukrainian, it's in like Carpathian dialect of Ukrainian. It's, um, it's not socialist realism, it's magical realism. And it's quite, it's quite weird, it's quite weird and beautiful. And it's, 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 it's you know, one of the very best Soviet films, if that's even the word. Apropos of this film, there were protests about the oppression of Ukrainians. Um, one of the people who took part in these protests was a poet uh, called Vasil Stus, um, who, uh, who, who loses his job as a result. I'm gonna to read to you one of his poems um, to, to make this point that sometimes culture is just trying to be culture, right? And that like a lot of, a lot of the defense of culture in the late Soviet period was on that basis. That all these things that I've been explaining to you, like people understood, like that was there, that was sorted out. But then it, somehow it's all meaningless unless there's a there there, right? Like unless the culture itself is there. So like, so Stus goes to, goes to the gulag twice. He ends up dying after a hunger strike in, 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 19, in 1985. But this is the kind of poetry he wrote. Um, this one is called, A Stranger Lives My Life and Where's My Body. It seems to me that it is not I who live, but another someone lives for me in the world taking my shape. No eyes, nor ears, nor hands, nor feet, nor mouth, estranged in my own body. And a chunk of pain enclosed in myself, suspended in the abyss. And you, though born, just burned and never grew into the body. You never entered the flesh, just a passerby between the worlds, having sunk to the bottom of a foreign existence. A hundred nights ahead and a hundred nights behind, and between them, a mute doll burned white from self-inflicted pain like a speck of hell, the laconic cry of the universe, a tiny ray of the sun, trapped and estranged in the body. You were awaiting another birth for yourself, but death entered into you long ago. That's my translation from, from yesterday. It's much prettier in Ukrainian. Um, I'm gonna resist the temptation. It's really nice in Ukrainian. Very nice in Ukrainian. Learn Ukrainian. Read it in Ukrainian. Um, the uh, the so 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 Stus goes is is, sent, is imprisoned. He's released. He, by the time he comes out, there's a human rights movement. The Ukrainian Helsinki group. He he defends it and then joins it. Is sent is sent to is sent to um, is sent to the Gulag again. He's sent to Param. The Gulag in the 70s is much smaller, um, but it still exists. Param is where I think four members of the Ukrainian Helsinki group die, he's one of them after, after a, um, a hunger strike. I'm gonna read you another one of his poems. We're just gonna do him as a, poem, a poet today. Um, this is not in my translation, this is Alan Zhukovsky's translation, which was just published a few months ago. This one is called, um, The Lord Has Started Being Born Within Me. The Lord has started being born within me and half recalled and half forgotten waits till I depart from life. It looks as if he is outside me at the edge of death where living people should not dare to enter. My grandchild, my ancestor, God waits. Together on my own, that's how we live, how we exist when nobody is near. Misfortune thunders like a cannonade. 
He is salvation, so white-lipped, I say. Please save me for a second, Lord, and then, recovered, I will save myself alone without assistance. But he wants me to leave my borders and desires to finalize my demolition by salvation, seeking to force me from myself amid the gusts of chilling winds, a saber from its scabbard. He bides his time and wants to get outside, to make the candle of my pain go out so that the darkness of obedience would save me by the touch of otherness, another form of life, another name, no longer mine, along with countless people inside the kingdom of the frenzied God who wishes to be born from deep within me. But I'll preserve that healing flame for longer, to not get caught too early by the darkness. My pain's black candle fills my road with light and represents my stealthy victory. So culture carries a shadow with it, right? Culture stands for itself. These, these poems are, they're not about politics, but culture stands for itself, but there's, it's, there's a shadow alongside it. The shadow from the 1860s, from the value of decree, the shadow from the 1930s, from famine and terror, the shadow of the 1970s of the, of the assimilationism um, and, uh, and the forced integration from the top. Which means that when Ukraine emerges as an independent state in the 1990s, culture is pursued very, very gently. There is no strong Ukrainization policy in the beginning. Um, Kiev and Ukraine are characterized by, by bilinguality, um, by code switching, by surzhik, which is the mixing of, of, of the two languages. Um, the, um, Europe is portrayed uh, in, the, in, the, in the beginning. Oh, there's another thing which is very important about Ukrainian culture, which is, um, especially at the beginning, oligarchical pluralism. Oligarchical pluralism, by which I mean when you have several different oligarchs with several different foundations and several different TV stations and several different this and that, that's a different situation from when you have one. It may not be the ideal situation, but it does mean that different views emerge about art and history and other things with different patrons. That was very characteristic of Ukraine in the 1990s, right? And remain, it's coming less so, but it's still, it's a feature, it's a feature of Ukraine. Okay, so the, um, the early, the early attitude towards Europe, I'll mention one novel, which is, um, again, like for fun, Yuri Andruhovich, um, Perversia, Perversion. In this novel, you, Europe figures as this kind of postmodern, very distant, beautiful thing, which we never might, which we probably you know, never get to, or if we get to, it'll be a result of all kinds of improbable um, drunken adventures. The, um, the, the, like, the, that's like the postmodern carnival version of where we are. Like we are this outskirt, we are this, we are this province. We reach Europe with our spectacular literature, basically. Um, th this changes, I would say, around the time of the Maidan, about which you wrote a book and had a lecture, where Europe starts to become much more practical. Where Europe is, Europe is not, because the politics of wanting to join Europe follows the culture of wanting to join Europe. Right? And the culture of wanting to join Europe has to do with younger people who see Europe as a future. Um, and so Europe becomes, somewhere around the, the 2010s, it's ceasing to become a kind of strange like, thing which is desired, a strange object of desire, and more a kind of practical place where we might go. And a key figure here would be um, Serhi Jadan, Serhi Jadan. Um, who, um, who in Kharkiv in 2014 um, had his skull broken for, this is, I mean, it could not be more symbolic of the themes of this lecture, had his skull broken after he refused to, um, to bow down to Russians, quite in a quite literal sense. Um, Jadon is a, is a great novelist and, uh, and also a great poet. He also has a ska band, um, which is a rare threefer, I have to say. Um, and, when, and, and when he does win, the Nobel Prize for Literature. I want that ska band like right in the middle of what they, all right. Uh, okay, um, so, so, so Jadan, um, Jadan would be an example of something, which is something else which is very important, which is the, the Eastern re-anchoring of Ukrainian culture, right? So I've, ma I've made this point, which is slightly awkward if you're from like Ivano-Frankivsk or Lviv, which is that the, 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 historical, the historical function of Galicia was basically 1870s to 1980s, maybe 1990s. Right? There was a very special role for Galicia in that time. And it remains a kind of repository, a safe place to go, so to speak, 
uh, in Ukrainian culture. But, but Zhadan is from a Russian-speaking environment, um, and he chooses to write only in Ukrainian and express himself in, in Ukrainian, um, absent emergency situations. This is a, so Zhadan was doing that the entire time. Um, Zhadan, by the way, is also someone very much worth, worth reading. Remarkable short stories if you don't want to invest in a whole, in a whole literature. Um, tre tremendous, what is the title, Genya? Like the last, what is it, the, la the last or is it the first gay club? Do you remember? Okay. Then he's like, he has like, he has, among other things, he has like, he has, he has really, he has really good stories about, uh, about, uh, he has really good stories about things which approach being political without quite being political, right? So um, his story about the gay club is, is a good example of that. Anyway, um, this Eastern anchor point is very important because some people were doing it all along, but then 2014 in Maidan was a turning point where major figures in Ukrainian culture realized that they weren't really welcome in Russia anymore and made a kind of turn. One of them um, was uh, someone called Slava Vokarchuk, who is the lead singer of Okean LZ, um, which is the, the, the biggest rock band. Traditionally a very big following in Belarus and Russia after 2014, this became awkward. Another was the, the, the comedian and writer Volodymyr Zelensky, who up until 2014 had a very big following, a very big career in Russia, and appears on Russian television until I think early 2000, maybe late 2013, early 2014. But then he realizes something has changed, right? So this is a, this is a turning point for a lot of people. And then in 2022, we've reached, we've reached a more dramatic turning point, um, extremely dramatic turning point, I mean, where things are happening so quickly and so violently that it's hard, you know, it's hard to characterize what's happening. But um, a, a dramatic example of this is, is the writer Volodymyr Rafayenko, who was here at Yale a couple of weeks ago. Volodymyr Rafayenko, who, who, wrote, who wrote only in Russian, who didn't even know Ukrainian, which is unusual, and who ceased communicating in Russian entirely with this war and is now a, Ukra a Ukrainian language writer, which is not an easy thing to do. Um, not an easy thing to do. It's kind of a remarkable thing for him to be doing. He said something very interesting when he was at Yale. He said, um, he said uh, we don't choose language. Language chooses us, and it's a strange kind, it's a strange kind of freedom, which like, there's, there's, profundity. there's profundity in that. What's that? You don't master language. Yeah, you don't write. Yeah, you don't master language. Language masters you, right? You don't master language, language masters, language masters you. Um, yeah. So the, so the, um, another example of this would be another, another writer who was just at Yale, Stanislav Aseyev, um, also from an entirely Russian speaking background, um, a, a writer now in Ukrainian, a Ukrainian writer, whose most recent book is about torture. And it's actually one of the best bits of prison writing that's been produced, I think, in Eastern Europe or maybe anywhere else. Um, so the final point that I want to make about, about culture um, is, that, is that we're, we're looking, OK, two more points, indulge me. We're, we're looking at a new centrality of Kiev. Like Kiev is something that hasn't been before. It's a Kiev which is, which is asserting itself as a kind of, as a, as a, as a European capital, and that is something new. Like Kiev has been many things, but a, a European capital among other European capitals in a modern sense is new. And a proud, a proud Kiev um, is something new. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna read a poem from, from Stus, um, which is about Soviet Kiev. And you'll, you'll, see, what I, you'll see why I'm doing this. Uh, it's a it's thousand-year-old thousand -year Kiev. And this is from, translated by Bogdan Tokarski and William Blocker. A 1,000-year-old Kiev fancied feeling young again. Suddenly, Kiev was aware of hotels, trolleybuses, trams, and trains, the Paton Bridge, the ungainly buildings on Tereshtatik. Kiev licked the rough asphalt with its pagan tongue. The slopes of the green theater became overrun by martens, squirrels, or rocks, and the Godurillo's roaring heathen laughter drove the Dnipro's waves. Kiev coughed asthmatically through the metro's drafts, the electric trains fearfully rattled, as a dozen layers of ground, white from human bones, horses' skulls, the gray ash of funeral pyres, pyres rippled like the skull of an angry bull's neck. Kiev strained, but then gave up. Just how the devil to lift this whole assemblage of new builds, avenues, motorways, and the stately birthless bellies of the inhabitants. May sacred forces strike you down, heathen Kiev hurled a curse. But then it saw a pack of pioneers and ashamed it bowed its head and hid itself away without a peep. Pioneers, you have to know, pioneers means communist youth group, right? So Kiev finally submits. That Kiev is now gone, 
right? The people who are now in charge of the government in Kyiv, the people who are now in charge of culture in Kyiv are of a different generation that isn't just post-Soviet or anti-Soviet, it's just something else. And the very last point that I wanted to make is that although it's too soon to evaluate what this war means for culture, one of the very striking things about this war is the production of culture within it. So other people have noted that this is the most recorded war of all time, which is true. I would note that that act of recording by journalists is also an act of culture, which requires you know, corporeal risk-taking as, well as, as well as intellect. But just the culture itself is going on. You know, not to sound too romantic or pathetic about it, but right down to and including in the trenches. Right? I, have, I have colleagues who are still giving their lectures from where they are right, in the trenches. Um, and the production of poetry in other forms of culture goes on. So I'm just going to read you one more poem. Please indulge me. This is from Yulia Musakovska, um, who's a mom who works in IT. She wrote this in late March 2022 for her collection, which is published under the title Iron. Her poem goes like this. This is March. Such problematic, such frightful poems, full of anger so politically incorrect, no beauty in these poems, no aesthetic at all. The metaphors withered and fell to pieces before they could bloom. The metaphors, buried in children's playgrounds, under hastily raised crosses, dead, in unnatural poses, by the gates of houses covered in dust. They prepared, meal, they prepared meals over an open fire. They did try to survive. It was of dehydration that they perished, under the rubble. Shot in a car, under a white flag, made from a sheet, with colorful backpacks over their shoulder. They lie on the asphalt, face down, next to the cats and dogs. I'm sorry to say so, but such verses are all we have for you today. Dear ladies and gentlemen, spectators of the theater of war. These recordings were made and edited by Guy Ortoliva at the Yale Broadcast Studio. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.